science enthusiasts. I'm your host, Jason Zakowski. I'm a high school chemistry teacher, but you probably know our dogs, Bunsen and Beaker. They're the science dogs on social media. This show takes what's best from their account, the curiosity and fun found there, and swirls it into podcast form. Every week, we're going to take some deep dive into an area of science and look at the research that's going on with our pets. We'll also have an expert guest who will enthrall you with their area of knowledge. This is The Science Podcast. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Science Podcast. We hope you're happy and healthy out there. It looks like with a little rain, the green is coming in all around the farm. So that's going to be really fun for the dogs to frolic about in, as long as there's no scary coyote to pick off Beaker. Um, That was the big event of last week. As of yet, uh, we've taken the dogs on leash on some small walks out through the back and not seen the coyotes. Um, Chris, Adam, and I are going to go walk out as far as we can to see what we see uh, and see if the coyotes have moved on. There's tons of space for them to move to, so I can't imagine they'd want to stay you know, anywhere they'd be coming in contact with humans that often. All right, on the Science Podcast this week... In Science News, a really interesting article about how, about using the brain to type cool. In um, Pet Science, we're going to take a look at therapy dogs again. This time, another study that looked at their helpfulness with college students. Our expert guest this week is Carmen Chinnery, who is a geologist here in Alberta. A fascinating discussion with her her, uh, about the stuff that's found in our own province. And and it probably applies to the rest of the world. Hey, uh, Bunsen and Beaker... What did the geologist say on May the 4th? May the quartz be with you. (laughs) Okay, on with the show. Because there's no time like science time. This week in science news, a really cool article, a really cool science story about how they gave somebody who was paralyzed the ability to type again. So where, what's the best way to introduce this? I was thinking about the story and I was thinking about text from Bunsen. So I do every Friday text from Bunsen. It's really popular on Twitter. We try and get it to uh, Instagram and to Facebook. I mean, if I forget to do it, I am reminded by many people, oh, when's text from Bunsen coming out? And it's, it's basically me pretending to be Bunsen and interacting with other people via fake text messaging. Somebody's always asking, how does Bunsen actually text? Does he use pause to text or bark to text? Ha ha. Very funny, right? Bark to text. But now what we're going to be looking at in this in this article is brain waves to text. So what's the what's the news? Okay, a 65-year-old man who was paralyzed was able to use um implants in his brain to imagine, not like move his hand at all because he was paralyzed, imagine handwriting and the the electrodes translated the impulses into typed words on the screen. That sounds science fiction-y? Absolutely true. So what did they do? Well, the man had two grids of electrodes implanted on the surface of his brain, and they were they mapped out in the brain. I'm not a brain person, but brain people probably know what I'm talking well know what I'm talking about, because I don't. Did they know they mapped out or they knew where in the brain uh, it controls hand and finger movements. Now, this man was paralyzed from the neck down and could only imagine writing, right? Couldn't move his hand. And the man couldn't write them. You know how some people who are partially paralyzed move their hand a bit and the gestures are interpreted? Nope. So what what the, the team did is they had him imagine writing, like handwriting, and an algorithm used the neural patterns 
that went with each imagined letter to type the letter. So the man imagined, like, everybody can try it right now. Imagine, like, handwriting the letter A, right? Like, really think about it. So that's what the man did, and the brain picked it up, or the, the, the electrodes picked it up, and, the, and then an algorithm over time was able to figure out what letter that was. Amazing. Now, eventually, the man was able to produce 90 characters or 15 words per minute. Now, that seems kind of slow, 15 words per minute, but that's pretty much as fast as my dad can type or how fast my dad can text on his phone. And that's what the study actually said is 15 words per minute is about the speed that that age group, 65 years and up, uh, is as fast as they can text. (laughs) So... Uh, you know, it seems slow, but it's it's not bad for that age group. Interestingly, um, mentioned in the study was it doesn't matter how long you've been paralyzed because the brain remembers a hardwired skill like handwriting. Obviously, if you had picked, like, let's say a child was um, paralyzed, if the child had not learned how to print or to handwrite or have like a really um, hardwired skill, they would this wouldn't work. The, 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 the patient or the volunteer has to have learned it in the first place. Now, there are some, some drawbacks. Getting to the point where this algorithm can interpret the network, uh, like the, the signals in your brain, is unique for each person. So it's not like they can just take that and apply it to somebody else. Um, you, you have to spend some time with the volunteer. Also, this guy had electrodes implanted on the surface of his brain. That sounds a little invasive to me. (laughs) So obviously before this becomes widespread, you probably don't want to be cracking open the skulls of everybody and putting electrodes in there. Or maybe you do. Maybe that becomes a push. The team is pretty confident though. This is something good about the study. The the team's pretty confident that it would, this would work with any volunteer in the same position of being paralyzed. They are asking for volunteers. They're going to be getting more people in and trying this with other paralyzed people to see if it is faster, slower, um, if they can improve on the the techniques, if the algorithm can be sped up. They also plan to work with people who have lost the ability to both speak and move their hands. And this technology brings back such agency to our fellow humans who have lost some of their agency. Um, It gives them the power to reclaim it. I think I think about my grandpa who died a year and a half ago, um, and he had pretty serious diabetes, and slowly he lost the ability to see. And that was really hard for him because he spent his whole time being a super able-bodied guy, and slowly losing his ability to see took away a lot of what he was able to do. I remember how happy he was when... I, uh, I, I, we found an old iPod for him and put a bunch of his songs that he liked to listen to on the iPod. And, um, and then I rigged up a speaker. So it had different felt knobs, like high, low, and medium to turn it on and turn the volume up and down. Um, he was so happy because it gave him like agency back. He could now do something for himself and listen to music. I can't imagine if this, if this improves how much agency that would give back to people who, can't type, can't interact with, you know, can't interact with the computer. Um, They can maybe speak, but not being able to type, not being able to write. Um, Very, very cool. That's science news for this week. This week in pet science, we're going to take a look at therapy dogs again. Aw, I love therapy dogs. 
And this therapy dog study took a look at college students specifically. This study was published um, in ERA Open. I think ERA stands for, what is the acronym here? American Educational Research Association, and it's peer-reviewed. And basically the conclusion of of the paper is that stress students exhibited cognitive improvements up to six weeks after completion of the four-week-long program with dogs. Um, what was So what did they do? What was this four-week program? Well, first off, um, they, what was the sample size? It was, it was a 309 students. And those students were randomly assigned to one of three academic stress management programs. Um, and they were featured, featuring a varying combinations of stuff. They had animal-human interactions, evidence-based stress management, and other techniques. The dogs were provided from Palos Pets, so they're a national organization with um, that produces therapy dogs for people. What, what happened with these three different groups? They saw that the students who were the most at risk ended up having the most improvements in their executive functioning. So what is executive functioning? Executive functioning is basically a catch-all term for skills that you need to plan um, and memorize, concentrate. So like your ability to do school, right? Sometimes we use that as high school teachers. The executive functioning of the student is high. The executive functioning of that student needs improvement. Um, So again, what were the results? Uh, They they saw that the students that were most at risk had the biggest improvement. So the students who had the most improvements needed to their executive functioning. And they had the most improvements in their executive functioning if they were in the group that had human-animal interactions. And those results stuck with those people up to six weeks later. It's super common. Universities provide stress relief management programs all the time. You know, there's they're similar to a lecture style. You watch slideshows, you take notes, you might learn some techniques. There's ways that you're taught to have less stress, exercise, eat better, get more sleep. Those are super important topics. One of the issues though is that even though all that information is really important, it seems to impact those who need help the least. <laughs> so the sadly, the, the people who are struggling the most, running a course like that helps them the least as opposed to other people. Now, what, what did they do in a human-animal interaction program? It let the students relax and, and pet, a, pet, pet an animal, mostly it was dogs, um, and then talk about what they were stressed about. Through petting the animals, they relaxed and they coped with their stresses. They, they got them out in the open. Um, and they, they, a lot of the students f- said they felt less overwhelmed. It let them think more clearly and set goals and become more motivated. When you're really stressed, evidence is pretty clear that you can't take up new information the same way. Learning about stress can be stressful. <laughs> so going to one of these courses for people who are moderately or low-level stressed might be really beneficial. Um, But for a really stressed out student with low executive uh, functioning or like they're struggling with their executive functioning does not help. They get more stressed out from that type of program. But just being able to sit with an animal and calm down, pet it, and uh, just chill out had a huge impact on their overall executive functioning. I love that. That's so cool. You obviously still have to work hard at whatever you're trying to learn, right? Um, Petting a dog doesn't automatically, boom, make you learn chemistry. But if you're like crazy stressed out 
and I'm trying to teach you chemistry, you're probably not going to be learning a lot of it. That's where the power of these dogs come in. I think as we learn more and as we talk more, there's like overwhelming evidence that our education system needs to grab this body of evidence and implement it for the betterment of our kids and, and adult learners. That's pet science for this week. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Science Podcast this week. The Science Podcast is always going to be free to download, but if you want to support the show, there's a couple things you can do. The first one is sign up on our Patreon page, patreon.com backslash Bunsen Burner. There's multiple tiers of support. We have a ton of fun with the patron group. You get to be on the podcast. You get postcards from Bunsen and Beaker. You get swag. You get early pictures. You get a whole bunch of awesome stuff. So check it out. The lowest tier is only five bucks a month. The other way you could support the show is checking out our merch shop. Our merch shop is hilarious. It's got all these adorable cartoons of Bunsen and Beaker. We keep producing more. I just want to thank the people that have supported the show that way. We're really, really proud of our merch shop because the the merch, the clothes, is really high quality. The colors are vibrant. And um, we come up with some really fun designs all the time. So check it out. That's at BunsenBurnerBMD.com. Thanks, everybody. On to the interview. It's time for Ask an Expert on the Science Podcast, and I have geologist Carmen Chinnery with me today. How are you doing today, Carmen? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm good. Uh, you're from the same province. I am. You're from Alberta, right? Or you're in Alberta? Yes, I'm, I'm from Alberta, and I'm in Alberta. Oh, so you're, bo- you're born and raised Albertan. Yes, in uh, Edmonton. Edmonton. Okay. Um, my other question for you, Carmen, is is you uh, is you and your family doing okay with coronavirus? Yeah, we're we're doing great. I was very excited. My mom was able to get her first shot uh, last week, uh, and she booked for her second one. So we're very very happy about that. And uh, the rest of us are are doing okay. We're making making it work. That's great. You know, all of a sudden there was no vaccines, and now it's like. Nearly everybody I know in that age group is excited and if they, they're booking in. I mean, it's not super easy, but it's happening and that's really exciting. Yeah, yeah. No, it's, uh, it's fantastic that it's, everything seems to be moving at super fast pace right now with it. So anyway, let's talk about you, Carmen. Could you tell everybody a little bit about your education and where you're at maybe with your career right now? Uh, sure. So I, uh, I t- went to the University of Alberta. Woo, U of A. Yes. <laughs> and uh, I, I uh, got a Bachelor of Science in, uh, with specialization in geology. Uh, and geology was something I knew I wanted to do um, since I was in early elementary school, um, all the way back to probably grade two. I think there's, um, you know, school activities where, you know, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I actually have geology written down um, oh. on there. You knew you knew quite young that you and geology were going to have a, a thing together. Yes, I'm one of those rare people who knew coming into university what they wanted to do and just stuck with it all the way through. I never changed paths at all when I when I went to university. Nice. So, um, and then yeah, after that, I uh, I went and worked at the Royal Trail Museum for three years, and now I'm in Calgary at the University of Calgary, and I'm working in their geoscience department. So what what drew you to geology when you were young? What was what was your draw? Like for me, I loved science, but it wasn't until I got into university that chemistry became my thing. What was what was your love for geology so young? 
You know what? I, as far back as I can remember, it was the Rocky Mountains. I absolutely oh. love the Rocky Mountains. I really love the Rocky Mountains. And I just really wanted to know about them and know how they formed because it seemed so abstract <laughs> to get these huge rock formations um, and just coming right off the flat prairie. Um, it was such a drastic uh, change in environment. Mm-hmm. So yeah, like Edmonton's pretty flat compared to Calgary. Calgary, you're starting to get the foothills, right? Um, yes, and you can so, actually see the Rocky Mountains from. Oh, Calgary. it's I, I I just love driving towards Calgary. You can just see because I can see the Rocky Mountains from my house, but like when you're in Calgary, you could you you could touch them. It feels like you could touch them. Yeah, it's just such a magical. I don't know for people for people who are listening that aren't near mountains. It's just man. Sometimes they just grab you by your heart. And it sounds like that's what they did for you, hey? Absolutely. Like one of, one of my favorite things to do on a weekend is to just drive from Calgary to Banff and back in a day. Oh. Just to go through the, the mountains there. And I'm so fortunate that it's that, uh, that close. Unfortunately, like Edmonton is a little more of a trip because to get to Jasper is, yeah. uh, is a few hours. But It's uh, like two, two and a half hours to get to like through Hinton through to Jasper, right? Yes, yeah, uh, I got. I was lucky, and this is—I don't know even know if I told the story to people before. I was lucky enough to get tickets to uh, the Dark Dark Sky Festival in Jasper. Oh yes, but it was when Bill Nye was speaking there, and I got tickets. There's only like I don't know fifty to have supper with him. It was like this crazy experience that I got to have supper with Bill Nye, the science guy, and it was at that festival. But I was like. Uh, I was in Jasper and I assumed from Red Deer, it was about the same distance to, to Banff. And I was like, oh yeah, we'll get there in like an hour and a half, two hours. No, (laughs) it's way further away. Okay. So moving on now, we have to talk about you working at the Terrell Museum for people not from Canada or even people in Canada. They may not know what the Terrell Museum is if they're not from Alberta. Can you can you maybe paint a picture about what it is, what the Terrell Museum is? Sure. So the, um, the Terrell Museum or the Royal Terrell Museum, it was uh, designated the royal uh, status uh, back in, I believe, the early 90s. Right, right. Um, it's, uh, it's basically, it's one of the premier paleontology museums in the world. Um, mm-hmm. It's it seems like it's in a very uh, out of the way location. You would expect something <laughs> like that to be in a major city, but it's not. It's it's in Drumheller, which is a small town mm-hmm. in Alberta. But um, the beautiful thing about Drumheller is you're right in the valley uh, and within the rock formations where dinosaurs are found in Alberta. Um, so it's perfect placement um, where you can, you know, go and learn about paleontology and you can actually, you know, step outside your front door and you can <laughs> see the rock units that you learn about. Um, That's wild. I never thought of that, right? Like, cause if you're learning paleontology anywhere else in the world, you have to like fly or drive probably to a dig site. Whereas you just like, okay, guys, we're going to take an hour hike. That's insane. I never even thought of that. Yeah, we can actually go out for, you know, a day and leave early in the morning, go out and do some digging in a site and come back, you know, for a late supper. <laughs> it's it's inc- it's incredible and it's it's such a beautiful uh, valley uh, to be in that even if you're not a paleontologist, um it's just so picturesque. 
Yeah, because you have those the hoodoos and the rock formations as you go down into that valley. It's gorgeous. And it's deserty too, right? Like, well, it's not a desert, but it's arid. It's definitely got a different kind of like climate. Yes, it's kind of like its own little microclimate uh, down there where you you uh, have this desert in the in the middle of the prairies. Yeah, it's wild. So for people who are listening and you make a trip to Alberta, man, I think the Royal Terrell Museum should be on your list. Maybe after the Rocky Mountains, if you haven't seen those. (laughs) I have also said this before in the podcast. My wife and I were lucky enough. This is obviously pre-COVID a couple of years ago. We went to New York and we went to the Natural History Museum there, the one that's in the movies. Yes. And nearly all of the fossils were from the Royal Terrell Museum at, at that museum. They were on loan. So that just that was just like wow this place that that I've been to many times is just so important for other museums around the world. Absolutely. Yeah, that was that's one of the things when I was working there is is to learn how much that not only do did we uh put on display at the museum there uh but just how much of our stuff gets loaned out um or replicas get made um and then you know they're purchased by other museums. Uh, and you know you can go you can go to any of these major major museums in the world, and you know you'll see stuff there that's I I, I can go there and I can look at it, and I'm like I know that dinosaur, <laughs> <laughs> I've seen yeah. that dinosaur. That's one of our dinosaurs. <laughs> yeah. So to put it in perspective, and this is I'm not embellishing at all. Um, I love the Natural History History Museum. It was it was fantastic, but the the paleontology section. The Terrell Museum kicks the snot out of it. Like that's how good the Royal Terrell Museum is. It's just fantastic. Absolutely, yeah. No, I I've yet to see any uh, paleontology exhibit in any museum uh, that even holds a candle to it. That's so cool. So, all right, what did you do there? Um, so we're, we're hyping up. You know, we should get uh, both of us should get some kickbacks from the Alberta government here. But anyways, what uh, what did you do at the Royal Terrell Museum? So my my main job at the Royal Terrell Museum is I was a collections assistant. So I actually worked in the back rooms where all the all the fossils are kept. Um, one of the things that a lot of people don't realize is when you go to a museum, what you see on display is, you know, almost less than five percent of the actual collections that museums hold. So in the back rooms where I am, there's about 95% of what the museum has. So I would be back there uh, organizing collections. I would be any new samples that came in, I'd have to um, what we call accession them. So give them identification numbers, find places to store them. Uh, If they needed some, uh, you know, uh, help in terms of, pieces needing to be prepared and glued together and stuff or properly uh, supported. Uh, I would work with our uh, preparation staff to make sure that they, they had that uh, done to them. And, uh, and, and I, maybe I'm wrong, but the amount of times, like, especially during the summer, obviously there's probably not a lot of fossils found during the winter. Um, but during the summer, there must be stuff coming in there all the time because literally every week I'm reading somewhere somebody found something and the Royal Terrell Museum is investigating, right? So um, that must have been an exciting place to work. Yeah, during I mean during the summertime, that's when all of our, our researchers would be out in the field and doing their their digging. And then as they got to the end of summer, 
Um, they would kind of pack everything up and the big specimens would uh, get put into plaster jackets to um, secure them and, and uh, protect them as they're being moved. So in terms of, you know, accessioning stuff, my busiest time was late summer, early fall, because that's oh, when everything came in. And so my basically my fall and my winter was nothing but going through and and uh, <laughs> getting all this getting all this stuff organized. The, the, the researchers would be like fossils, 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 fossils for like two months. And then, then you're like, oh, man, time to sort this for the rest of the year. Is that kind of kind of the idea there? Pretty much, yeah. I would just oh. like, you know, by the time September hit, I would be drowning in in, <laughs> in the back room. Can uh, you I'm trying can to you, figure where do I put my efforts today? <laughs> can that must be so wild to explain that to other geologists or paleontologists that don't work in areas like you know Drumheller that you're drowning? And there's so many fossils; it's ridiculous. Um, whereas other places, it might be a trickle, or if you're lucky, you get something on loan from someplace that. Um, has you know has the specimens like you like like Terrell? Yeah, it, it's kind of neat, and I, I joke sometimes where you know I, I people will find something like they'll find a, a an Albertosaurus tooth or or part of a you know an, a, a limb bone from a from a hadrosaur, and they'll be so incredibly excited about it. And I hear about this, and all I can think of is. Yeah, I've I've got you know three cabinets of that where I work. Like it, it, <laughs> the you get kind of a, a little bit jaded in, oh, uh, in I was, that's, your excitement level about it because you're just exposed to it so much. And uh, I have to kind of stop and remember that you know what when I started there, this was mind blowing to me. And I have wow. to kind of keep myself reminding that you know a lot of people don't understand this, and I'm incredibly lucky. That you know, this is my this is my everyday job. That's crazy. I love it. That, that's what I that's what I was getting at, but I couldn't put it into words. So thanks for thanks for helping. And that's a real dinosaur. So people who are listening and chuckling, like did did Carmen just make up a dinosaur? No, we have the Albertosaurus. It's a real thing. Absolutely, yes. It's a, the official dinosaur of Alberta. It is. It is. Is okay. Isn't there a dinosaur on our money? Like I forget, uh, that was like a big thing. We have uh, a dinosaur on our money now. Um, one of the bills, I think. Uh, yes, there is. I'm, I can't remember exactly which one it is, but yes, on on the back of one of the bills, it might be the might be the, the five or the ten dollar. Um, it does have um, a dinosaur on there, and on if you have uh, in Alberta, your driver's license actually has <laughs> uh, a dinosaur on it as well. Yeah, it does. Um, so like, it's, it's just wild, right? I think people from Alberta, they get jaded, right? Like, cause everybody's been to the Terrell museum in their life, sometimes multiple times. Um, and we're like, oh yeah, yeah. Like we have dinosaurs, but that's like a huge novelty to people from other places in the world. Absolutely. So, yeah. That's cool. Um, one more question before we move on, man, I could talk to you for hours actually, but I have to, I have to, I have to be a little more succinct. Um, while, while you were there, um, is there any like amazing find that you were part of that you'd like to talk about? Um, actually, yeah. So one of, one of the, the, the great things that was going on when I was there is we had a, a researcher, uh, her name was Dr. Betsy Nichols, uh, and she specialized in, uh, marine, um, reptiles. 
So marine reptiles are not the same as dinosaurs. Dinosaurs are, are strictly land reptiles. Um, but the marine reptiles are, you, you hear about the mosasaurs and the ichthyosaurs. These are the, the marine reptiles. And she specialized in that. Oh, and cool. one of the largest ichthyosaurs ever found uh, was one that she discovered in BC. And so all those specimens were coming in in their jackets um, while I was working there. And they were starting the preparation of those uh, while I was working there. And unfortunately, the display itself, I wasn't there when they finished it. But if you go there now, you see the the whole thing on display. Yep. Uh, and, uh, and yeah, so I was there when, when that that whole process was starting. And it, again, one of these things that kind of just blows your mind at the size of these animals. Oh man. I love dinosaurs. I love dinosaurs. <laughs> I could talk. To, I, I I would just like listen to you for hours. Talk about dinosaurs. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, so the ichthyosaur, uh, just for people who don't know, and maybe I'm a little rusty on my dinosaur terminology, uh, that's like it's a giant kind of dolphin looking thing with a very long toothy snout. Is that am I on the right track? Yep. So it's just kind of a you know a, a dolphin dolphin like in terms. It's got its its uh, uh, flippers and everything like that, but it's got a very very long neck uh, and quite a small head uh, relative to the the rest of its rest of oh, its body. Okay. Right. I think I've seen that one at Terrell. Yeah, yeah. It's got. Is it the one that's kind of the Loch Ness monstery? Yes, that's it. The Loch Ness monster or the Ogopogo. Those are kind of based off of the the anatomy of of an ichthyosaur. <laughs> Ogopogo. We're gonna have people so confused. Not from Canada. <laughs> like, what's the Ogopogo? Well, guys, that's a whole other podcast. <laughs> Google it. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks for talking about your time at the Terrell Museum. I mean, I swear that would be a whole podcast if we had time there. My other question is now you're at the University of Calgary in the geoscience department. What are you doing there for the University of Calgary? Uh, so my job here is a kind of a, a two, two, two uh, branches. The first one is I look after the collections here. So it's, it's an extension of what I did at the Royal Terrell Museum, where I look after all the fossils and rocks and minerals uh, that the department has. And then the other branch of it is I work as a lab technician. So uh, mostly the introductory courses. So the, you know, geology 201 or geology 202 uh, intro to rocks. Uh, I work with the, the labs for those so that getting all the samples that students would study with uh, and helping to create the content of lab exercises that students would do in those courses. And so that's a little bit more uh, working with people teaching slash education rather than just straight uh, collating samples like at the Terrell Museum. Yeah, so I would work especially with the uh, teaching assistants who would be the ones teaching the lab sections. Um, I would mm. work with with them um, to kind of help them in their process of what to teach and how to teach it based on on uh, my experiences. Uh, and sometimes I would just love to go into the labs while the labs are happening and just kind of, you know, go around and ask students how things are going. If, if they have a, a question at the time, help them with a, um, a sample. Um, so I would just kind of go in there and, and do that um, because oh, that, I, I love I love the teaching aspect of geology. That, that must be so fun because geology in those labs, a lot of them are like so hands on, like, 
like here's a rock, let's study it kind of thing, right? Like it's somewhat tangible as opposed to some really theoretical areas of science. Absolutely. And one of the the biggest problems we have with COVID right now is we can't have that hands-on experience for students. So trying Mm. to come up with alternative ways to, to teach these concepts that are really you know, you just you just can't grasp them unless you're holding the rock or looking at the at the rock um, has been quite challenging for us. What are some of the interesting things the U of C has that you uh, like you keep track of? Is it similar to the Terrell Museum, like mostly fossils or is it other types of um, geological specimens? Uh, it's a little bit of fossils, a little bit of minerals, a little bit of rocks. Um, because we're in kind of in the heart of oil and gas company, we actually have a lot of core. Um, so mm-hmm. the ore that gets drilled uh, yep. by the uh, the companies, the the rocks uh, sections that they drill out, they get put in boxes, and we have some of those for to help teach courses. Um, but yeah, we have kind of a, a sprinkling a sprinkling of everything. Uh, but in terms of kind of really you know cool stuff that I like, uh, we have a few meteorites. Oh, neat! Uh, which are absolutely fascinating. I love them. Are they magnetic? Like, do you? Are, I, I've heard that some of them are magnetic, or I know that some of them are magnetic. Yeah, some of them are magnetic. We do have a couple uh, that are like that. We have one. It's called the Millerville meteorite. So it was found uh, in Millerville, which is a small <laughs> hamlet uh, just south and uh, west of Calgary, um, and it's very heavily magnetic. It's mostly nickel, nickel and iron. Oh, so cool! So it's very heavy. Were you, uh, like, was it two weeks ago? Again, this podcast will come out a bit later, but um, in February, there was a fireball that went across uh, Alberta. Did you did you get to see it, or were uh, you too, too, south, too far south? I was uh, too far south, but I, I saw all the uh, people's front door cams and everything like that that were, <laughs> were, ca- were catching that one. And, yeah, we've seen, we've seen a, a few of those in the last few years come through. That one was wild. I got actually interviewed by the local paper for my opinion on it because they asked some science person um, and it was a little too technical, <laughs> I guess, what the science person was saying. And I was incorrect. Um, it was like a kind of a blue teal color. So I assumed it had some mineral in it that made that color. But it turns out it was like a little piece of a comet, which is actually kind of rare um, for for stuff that comes through, I guess. Yeah, usually the meteorites will be more of a a yellow yellow uh, orange glow when they mm. when they come through. I don't think they're going to ask my opinion anymore on uh, on on fireballs because I was I would my my guess was wrong, but everybody was guessing at that time. <laughs> oh, absolutely! Yeah, you're, you're you're basing everything on a small streak of light that is <laughs> thousands of kilometers away from you and is gone within half a second. <laughs> yeah, that one burnt up though. It it was or it just it got destroyed like it never ever made land uh, yeah. like it never came down, yeah. Oh, yeah. that's cool. That is cool. So, um how man, okay, one more question before we move on. Sure. How how big are the meteorites that you guys have? So, we have a range of them. Um some of them are just, you know, very small pieces, maybe about um, you know, the size of a size of a loony. Mm-hmm. Um, but some of them, like the, the Millerville one we have is, um, it's 35 pounds. Wow. Uh, and I would say it's about the size of, you know, it's, it's actually almost the size of a human head. Um, wow. It's, it's quite, it's quite big. 
Uh, and we have another one called Bruderheim, which is named after the Bruderheim. <laughs> um, and it's kind of, you know, si- similar size. It's, it's more uh, elongate, though. So it's kind of a more uh, loaf, loaf of bread shape <laughs> there. But it's, it's quite big as well. Man, when that one the size of a human head came down, that would have been a spectacular boom. Like, wow, that would have made a hole. Absolutely, yes. <laughs> when did that one come down? Uh, we don't know when it came down. Um, oh, actually, okay. what happened with it is an interesting story. Um, it was found in a farmer's field. And this <laughs> yep. farmer, he was actually getting his field ready for planting that spring. And when they do that, they have to go through because there's always rocks that get pushed up into the soil. Mm-hmm. Um, so when they're taking their plows across, sometimes the, the equipment hits this stuff. So they have to go out and they have to, you know, by hand and by shovel, move these rocks out of the way. So he hit this one and meteorites have a, a fairly distinct look to it. They don't really look like regular rocks in a lot of cases. And he saw this and he thought he would just take a sledgehammer and just break up this rock before he would. <laughs> This is not going to happen. Before he would dispose of it. And he took the sledgehammer to it and the sledgehammer just bounced right back. <laughs> and if Can you, you imagine how, oh my God, how surprised would he have been? Oh yeah. <laughs> and if you look at, if you look at the meteorite, there's actually a tiny little section on the edge of it where you see the imprint of the head of the sledgehammer <laughs> that hit it. That's awesome. And that's all the damage it did. So once he saw that, then he realized this isn't this isn't uh, your right you know average rock. So he actually contacted the University of Calgary at that time, uh, and we went out and and took a look at it. And yeah, it was a, it was a meteorite. Wow. Yeah, because I guess you know what if you're not looking in the right area and it's kind of rural Alberta, nobody sees it. Right. It just comes down. Maybe somebody's like, wow, that's interesting. They t- you know they tell people. Um, and uh, what year was this? What was discovered? What year was it discovered? This would have been in the seventies, actually. Yeah. So there's no social media, right? Like if if ten farmers and their family saw this thing, it's not like they could post it on Twitter. No, exactly. There's like <laughs> one one or two one or two newspaper articles um, that you can find on it, and and that's it. Wow, that's so cool. I love that story. Um, would you be willing to send me a picture of this thing? Absolutely. Yes. Oh, yay. Okay. We'll make sure that's in the, for, we'll make sure that's like in the ad or I'll tweet it when this, this episode comes out for people to see too. All right. So just moving on from your, your job at U of, U of C, why, why is geology important for our province of Alberta? And maybe the bigger question is why is geology important for everybody? So in Alberta, geology is actually, it's quite important. Um, One of the first things, you know, if you think about geology and Alberta together, uh, the first thing that comes to mind is oil and gas. Um, Mm. Geology is critical in being able to identify um, formations that have oil and gas in them under the the earth. Um, So that's kind of where where everybody's uh, mind goes to when they hear it, but that's kind of where where their mind stops on it too. Um, But in terms of Alberta, we have a a very um, diverse geology here. Uh, When you think about it, we have the badlands of of Drumheller, which are this kind of desert uh, area here. We have the Rocky Mountains right on our, our western border. Uh, we have 
you know, the oil and gas of, of southern Alberta in, in these, these uh, carbonate rocks underneath. We also have them in northern Alberta in the oil sands. Uh, so there's a, a, a huge collection of these geological environments. Uh, and you need to be able to, to understand. I, I, I liken it to, you know, it's, it's kind of like if you, li- you live in a house, you can't really understand and live in your house well unless you understand your house. And it's the same thing with geology. We all live on the earth. And if you don't understand the earth, you can't live properly uh, Hmm. in it. And, you know, that's kind of bringing it to why geology is, is important to science. Um, One of the other things I like about geology and, and it's, it's relationship to science is geology. I find kind of, it brings the aspect of context uh, to science. We think of the major sciences, the biology, the chemistry and physics. And anybody who has ever gone through high school science um, has, you know, you do this individual experiment in chemistry, you know, you make this reaction happen, or you do these calculations in physics where, you know, this ball is bouncing off of a wall or, or something like that. Um, but it's hard to kind of put that into a bigger context that people can really understand. But geology, you know, because the world around us, we all see this stuff every day, it actually allows us to do that because, you know, without the chemistry, we can't understand the rocks. We need to know what the rocks are made of. That requires the chemistry. Without the physics, we can't understand, um, you know, seismic earthquakes, uh, landslides, things that are really Mm. important, you know, in terms of just building things, Um, and, you know, in biology, without the biology, we don't understand paleontology. And without paleontology, we don't understand life all the way back to, you know, 3. million billion years ago, billion, uh, mm-hmm. when life began. Um, so it, that's why I really love it. It's just, you know, you take these individual pockets that you learn about, these individual silos, and just brings it all together. Uh, in a way that, you know, most people or, you know, layman people can understand. That's great. I always joke because uh, I'm a chemistry teacher, right? I'm like, chemistry is the central science. But it seems to me like geology is the central, central science. <laughs> yes, absolutely. No, I don't well, I, I, I personally think that geology is the central science. <laughs> yeah, it sounds, I mean, it definitely makes more sense than chemistry. One of the things that I always find so cool about geology is um, it, it, it takes like a special, not a special, it takes like a certain person to really get it. Like I've taught geology in, in high school and we're going to talk about that. You know, you, you teaching geology to kids is some kids, they just get it. Like you give them a fossil and they understand the magnitude of holding the fossil. Whereas other kids, you give them the fossil and they're like, whatever, it's, I don't care. Um, and it's that, it's almost like magic when kids hold that or they, they make the connection that geology is a tie to a past that is so far behind uh, in terms of human lifespan. It's just, you, you can't wrap your head around it, but some kids are able to take that. It's, um, it's such a cool thing about geology. Oh, absolutely. And, um, you know, it's, it's even, you get that even at the, at the university level here where there are some aspects of geology that, um, you know, students actually really struggle with. Uh, one of the big ones is structural geology where you're, you know, learning about the movement of plates and it's something <laughs> that is so visual, but it's not, 
you know, movement of plates and, and fault movements and stuff like this, unless you're in the middle of an earthquake, it's very hard to kind of wrap yeah. your head around because these are, are infinitesimal movements. These are millimeters and centimeters per year. Um, yeah. So you don't really see it happening. And being able to kind of visualize that is is much more difficult for for some people than others. I know I had uh, quite a quite a, a time with that when I was doing my degree. That was one of the the hardest things for me to wrap my head around was visualizing some of this stuff. Well, yeah, because we don't have earthquakes ever. Like if we have an earthquake, it's like oh, that's you know maybe it's from fracking or something, right? I mean we we have tiny tiny earthquakes, but. Um, I mean the 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 kids that I have in who are uh, like exchange students from Japan, they get earthquakes. They're they're like, oh yeah, earthquakes. So maybe it's just it's how you grew up. Like if you've experienced an earthquake, you it's just I've never experienced one, so I don't know what it's like. But it maybe makes that whole the plates like subduction and uh, plates like giving away and moving all of a sudden twenty millimeters in a second rather than a millimeter over a year is it makes more sense yes absolutely <laughs> have you ever experienced an earthquake i have not i've, no, uh, I've see. you know there's as, as dangerous they as dangerous as they are i kind of do like even you know you're talking about maybe we get some of these tiny earthquakes you know as a result of of fracking or, or something like that there was the yeah there one was one in banff just a few weeks ago right 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 like what was that one from the banff one do they know i i am actually not sure uh i have oh, not yeah. i've not heard definitively what no the, they, i thought they were yeah what that one was from because sometimes if you have a, a lot of um you know earthquake activity happening um further away around the same time you get you know some smaller ones will will break out so if there mm. was a big one happening say you know along the san andreas um, right. Sometimes you get these tiny little ones further, further inland as you gotcha. know, there. But uh, no, I've never experienced one, but I, I, I kind of do, you know, these people who say that, oh, they were woken up by something or, you know, the books on their shelves fell down from this. And I'm like, this never happens to me. <laughs> I want this to happen. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you want it until you're in it. That's what the kids from like uh, the Japanese exchange students say are like, yeah. It's cool, but it's scary, and you don't really like it. So yeah, I, I just want a small earthquake, just a little one. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, let's move on to the next part of the podcast. It's a fun one. We always ask our guests to share a pet story. It's the science podcast, after all. Uh, do you have a pet story you could share with us? I do. Um, so I grew up with uh, uh, pets uh, pretty much all my life. We had dogs growing up, um, but currently I have a an orange tabby cat. Um, Aw. His name, his name is Faramir, uh, <laughs> the Lord of the Rings character. Yeah. Uh, and he, uh, he's been with me now for almost 16 years. Um, but wow. he is, uh, he's my best friend. Mm. And he has, uh, he, he has what I call cousins. Um, both my siblings have their own uh, pets. They both have beagles. Uh, when, when the animals get together, they're just like, you know, uh, uh, cousins or, or siblings. Um, and you know, some, one, one of the beagles annoys, annoys my cat. The other one, the cat kind of bullies, um, just like with any, any siblings. Um, but yeah. And, uh, the one beagle, my sister's beagle, his name is boo boo. Um, they they kind of uh they sometimes they would they grew up together a little bit um because there were times that my cat would actually live with my parents um just based on other living um 
experiences that that I was having. So they grew up in the in the same house together, and the, this is the one that the cat liked to kind of bully because the dog was very. Um, we say neurotic, but it was, it was a nervous, a nervous dog. Um, and the cat knew this. And one of its favorite things to do would be if the dog went on a walk, um, the cat wanted to go on the walk too. He loves, he loves going on walks, but you know, uh, what he'll do is he'll either go ahead of you or he'll, he'll kind of go 20, 20 feet behind you. He won't actually go next to you, but what he loves to do is he would, walk through people's front yards, uh, so parallel to the sidewalk, and a lot of people in our neighborhood have hedges. And he would go, you know, a little ways ahead of the of the dog, and the dog would not see where he is, but then he would hide in the hedges. And once the dog got up there, he would just pounce out of the hedges and scare the dog so much. And he'd do this two or three times a walk. And the poor dog just never got used to it. Uh, but that was oh that was one of his favorite things to do. Oh, my goodness. That is hilarious. That is a, definitely a cat thing. It is, yes. Yeah, I, 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 didn't, I never thought growing up that cats had much personality, but I've learned that Cats actually have almost more personality than dogs in a lot of cases. Um, they're, <laughs> they're little- they, have a, they have a very subtle personality, but uh, they're 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 amazing. I, I absolutely I absolutely love them. That's cute. Yeah, they're pretty independent creatures. Um, and they, yeah, they definitely have personalities for sure. Oh yes. <laughs> um, Bunsen and Beaker have uh, cat cousins close to us. Um, the cats are kind of uh, not so cert- not so sure about the dogs. Definitely Bunsen because he's so big, right? Um, he's like he must look like a giant to them. So, <laughs> yeah, and and Faramir, I mean, he's he's used to dogs, but he's actually never really interacted very much with cats. Um, really, the only cats he's ever interacted with is you know if there's another neighborhood cat out, they'll get into a spat at night, um, <laughs> or if there's another cat in the vet's office. Um, but otherwise, he he's never um, he's never lived with another cat or anything like that. So I don't actually know very much about how he would he would interact with other cats. But um, he's he's not afraid of dogs. Loves dogs. Um, oh, cute! You know, if depending on the size of the dog, he may swat at it. The smaller the dog the more he'll swat but yeah like be- beaker size beaker yeah, would get a swat absolutely beaker size and beaker energy yes he'll swat yeah. he'll swat at that <laughs> oh yeah yeah beaker will be like relentless she'll be like either wanting to chase the cat or play with the cat bunsen is just curious he'd be like hi it's a cat i'm curious about you yeah and then if the cat's good with him he's good with the cat and and the other times the cat is like Bop, 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 like like bashed his nose like five times with those quick cat cat like taps. Yes, and then he's like, "Okay, this cat doesn't want to do with me." So <laughs> <laughs> that's cute, Faramir. Hey, Faramir. Yeah, Faramir. There we go. So why Faramir, and then not another Lord of the Rings character? What was what was Faramir? What's the draw to Faramir? Uh, Faramir was always my favorite character uh, in okay. the Rings books. Um, he was yep. by far my favorite. Um, I, I really liked uh, Boromir as well, so the two brothers. Um, but I decided on Faramir because uh, Faramir was uh, he was a farm cat, so bor- born of farm cats, and the litter was only two two cats, um, him, him and, a, and another boy, and Faramir was the younger one. 
So oh, that's there I you go. Boromir because he was the younger of the two brothers. If I had taken the older one, I would have gone with Boromir. That's cool. Yeah. Boromir, I feel, gets a bad rap. He was a good dude. He just got, you know, too close to the one ring. Yes, absolutely. I totally agree with that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's cool. Thanks for sharing your pet story. The other question we always ask our guests is for a super fact. It's something that you know that kind of, if you were to tell people, it blows their mind a bit. Do you have a super fact for us? Uh, yeah. Um, I mean, I, I in geology, I think everything's a super fact. Um, <laughs> But one of the ones I, I like to tell kids the most about is uh, I like to talk about ammonites. Um, ammonites are these kind of flat coiled sea creatures. Um, it's kind of like a cross between a, a, an octopus, a snail and a, and a squid. Um, and they lived in, uh, lived in the oceans. They were very dominant during the Cretaceous. So the same time as the dinosaurs. Uh, cool. And they actually went extinct uh, in the same event that the dinosaurs went extinct at. Um, and the reason why they're um, they're actually quite important to the province of Alberta is because of their shells. Um, their shells are uh, made of a mineral that we call amylite. Uh, amylite is a gemstone, and it's actually the official gemstone of Alberta. Uh, and if you ever go to a you know rock and mineral um, store or a jewelry store, you'll see uh, amylite. It's this kind of red green uh, multicolored uh, flat mineral um, that you'll see in earrings and and pendants a lot of time. Uh, but this is taken this this is taken from their shells. This isn't like a mineral or a diamond that you know grows in the ground. What really? Ground. Yeah, no, it's just I didn't know that. Yeah, it's taken right off right off their shells. And with ammonites, one of the reasons why it's it's uh uh so prominent in Alberta is because we have these Cretaceous rock formations where the dinosaurs are found. Uh so it means the ammonites are always are found there as well because in the Cretaceous, Alberta was kind of a coastal environment. Um, you mm -hmm. actually had what we call the Bear Paw Sea coming through Alberta. Um, so there's lots of ammonites living living in the sea. And if you go down by Lethbridge, these rock beds, they have so many ammonites in them that they actually mine them with big machinery like backhoes. Um, they can take these ammonites out of out of the rock beds, and a lot of them have their their specific type of ammonite uh, we call placentiserous, and they have these gemmy shells on them. No way! This is an actual like that, like the rainbow multicolored thing, right? Yes, absolutely. And what? you'll see sometimes if you go to museums, sometimes you get these uh, actual complete shells with that gemmy uh, yeah. ammonite on them that you'll see. I know the Terrell has one that's. You know, it's about almost a meter meter in diameter. Um, we're fortunate to have one here at the University of Calgary. It's a little smaller, um, but yeah, that's where you that's where this this uh, amylite comes from. That is used for used for jewelry. It's off these uh, sea creatures there. And okay, did I'm just I'm just speechless. Did okay? Did these sea creatures way back then were their shells that color, or through the process of fossilization? that mineralize their shell like how can you answer that do you know where i'm going with it yeah um so uh what we what we call that kind of uh um preservation is a, it's original material 
So it is believed that that actually was what their shells looked like. No um, way. The, the chemistry of the of the shell is not different from what a modern uh, relative or descendant of ammonites would be. It's this calcium carbonate um, cal- calcite or aragonite, which is a, a same same composition, just a little different uh, f- uh, chemical structure. Um, material. So it's, it's actually what we call unaltered. Uh, so it, it would have been actually what they, what they would have looked like in the sea at the, at the time in a lot of oh cases. Oh my goodness. That would have been gorgeous. I, th- I bought my wife am- amylite earrings. I'm sure I did. Cause it's like iridescent, right? Like it's sparkly. Yes, absolutely. It's, it's, wow. just, it's just gorgeous. And if you, amylite comes in, in pretty much all colors. Um, the red green amylite is kind of the most common, uh, yes, I think find, that's what I got her. Yeah, if you find the blue purple, um, that's the more rare one. So it's it's more expensive, <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, it's 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 very cool. But yeah, you can find it in the entire rainbow spectrum. That's insane. So just head down to Re- Lethbridge and start digging, and you might get lucky. Hey, pretty much. If you <laughs> if you ever see the rock formation, uh, the Saint Mary's formation, that is one of the premier um, beds of ammonite fossils. That's cool. All right. Well, that's a road trip this summer, heading down the Lethbridge. Yeah. <laughs> that, is a, that is a super fact. That has blown my mind. I am, my mouth was agape as you were talking because I, I knew where you were going. My question was going and, and it was like, did these creatures have those shells back then? That is wild. Yeah. And, and I was the, the way I learned about this, actually, you know, you think, oh, I worked at the trail. I learned from it there, but I did it when I was in my undergrad degree. Um, we always had to do field courses. And one of the first field courses I did, that was actually a stop. We would go to that quarry oh, cool. um, there and, you know, they, they would actually let you pick through. And, you know, if you found a little piece of ammonite, you could actually keep it as long as it wasn't, you know, one of the complete shells or, or very valuable, <laughs> not the little fragments, yeah. uh, you know, everyone got to, got to keep a fragment and I still have that fragment on my bookshelf. Oh, that's cool. Man, I love it. Fossils are so cool. Geology is amazing. Thanks for sharing your super fact. No problem. <laughs> um, the last section of the podcast is a fun one. Not that we're not that I'm not having fun right now. This is this is a great discussion. Um, but we get our guests to talk about something that is important to them. Um, it could be a cause. It could be a hobby. You wanted to talk about teaching geoscience to kids. Um, I, let's just get into it. What's what's your passion there? Yeah, so um, because I want, knew I wanted to be a geologist when I was so young, um, I would look forward to, you know, learning about geology in our science classes. Um, and, you know, when I, it wasn't until I got to university that, you know, I, I understood, you know, curriculum for science and you have to teach certain units in certain years. Um, but I just do remember my grade three unit uh, where you learn about some rocks and minerals and I knew in grade seven that there was this unit as well that that got taught Um, and I just remember being so disappointed because the way that our our class worked for grade seven is the geology unit got left to the very end Hmm. and so we only spent like two days on it oh Um, so (laughs) and unless you then go to university and take geology courses 
you don't really get that kind of exposure to it unless you're one of those people like me who, you know, enjoy it on the side as, as your own, you know, passion without, without that extra exposure and curriculum. Mm-hmm. Um, so I always wanted to be able to provide an outlet where kids can learn about that. Um, one of the things I found with teaching at the, at the University of Calgary is that the number of students we get coming in starting the geology program right off the bat is actually very low. Um, there's because again, there's not a lot of people who come in thinking geology. They think, oh, biology and medicine mm-hmm. and, and all these kind of things. But they always end up having to take option courses. Um, and one of the science options they take is the geology. And I think part of it is because geology always has that rocks for jocks. Um, <laughs> That's thing. the U of A one, right? Yeah, st- stigma about it, um, where it's just like, oh, this is this is easy credits. Um, they always find out later that no, it's not easy credits, <laughs> but they really enjoy it. And so what happens is once they get to their second year, they'll actually transfer into our program. Nice. So the, you know, the, the excitement to learn about it is there. And mm-hmm. I really like being able to kind of in, expose kids to that excitement at a younger age um, to really, you know, kind of build that up. Um, so that they would actually want to go into geology and and be part of that science. Um, so one of the things I, I love to do is I, I kind of learned this first at the at the Trail Museum. Um, I would volunteer for some of their uh, what we called campings, their their overnight stays. That groups of kids, whether it be you know kind of scout groups or classes, could come in. They would do paleontology programs and they got to stay overnight they got to sleep in the dinosaur gallery um oh yeah and i really enjoyed actually just kind of going and sitting in on some of the programs that they would do whether it was fossil casting or just learning about fossils and watching the educators teach these students about it and that kind of led me when I caught to the UFC here to kind of do the same type of thing. So when we have, we have summer camps that are based on engineering and science, um, you know, I would come once a week and do a little presentation on some geology or paleontology topic um, to expose the kids to this um, mm-hmm. and really, really get them excited. And I'm, I'm in a very fortunate position where I have literally thousands of rocks and fossils and minerals at my disposal to provide this experience where a lot of people don't have that ability. Um, So I really enjoy being able to kind of use that to its maximum potential um, to get kids interested. And you're, and you're right. Like, ah, man, I could talk for a while about how the Alberta science curriculum needs to get kind of like changed up a bit. Um, I really feel that geology, geology, uh, I've, I, I think we talked, I talked to you briefly about that at the start of the, the podcast before we started recording is only in one class in high school science. That's it. Where it's specifically geology in, in grade nine, grade 10, grade 11, grade 12, where it's specifically geology. And I think we do kids a real disservice by not having more of it. Um, I don't know. What, what, how do you feel? 
Um, I, I, feel, I feel the same way. Like, you know, again, when you, when you think what we talked about earlier about how geology is able to, you know, pull in from all these other, you know, major branches of science, um, I, I think it, it allows it, it'll, it allows kids to be able to, you know, understand the world around them. And I think it actually allows them to then better perceive um, going forward the world around them and how they can be, you know, part of that, part of that world. Um, we, geology looks at some things like what we call surficial geology, where you look at glaciers and you look at river systems, all the stuff that happens on, on the surface. And by understanding the geology of these things, it can actually branch out into other things. Um, you know, one of the, the biggest, um, debates right now in in alberta is coal mining in the east oh my Coast. goodness yeah and oh. one of the big problems with this that a lot of people are seeing is because this is where the headwaters are for mm. the major river systems that go through alberta and depending on how you do coal mining uh and how river systems work that connection um can be quite detrimental if it's not done the right way so to understand that geology, even if you go into something that's not traditionally geology, even if you go into something like, you know, um, hydro engineering or, uh, or biology or something like that, you do need these little aspects of geology to really properly understand. And I think that's one of the reasons why something like this debate that has become quite political, um, is kind of, a a disservice to the general public because these aspects are not completely understood. Hmm. Um, and it's very easy to, to take a, a position on something that if you don't understand all the, all the arguments behind it, it's, it's, it's hard to either, you know, to, to really bring the argument, bring the argument for it, whether it's for or against Right. And and for people that are listening, not from Alberta, I, I'm pretty sure people in Canada know about this. Like this was a big deal. Um, and you can correct me if I'm getting the kind of the, the retelling of what's happening wrong. Without consultation, um, the government rolled back uh, the ability to mine in, in on the eastern slopes of the Rocky Mountains. They were protected. You weren't allowed to mine there for coal. And they rolled that back and then signed uh, a ton of leases to coal companies to mine to mine for coal. Um, and it kind of just started bubbling until it became a crescendo of people extremely concerned about this. Um, and I believe the government has walked back some of it um, and they're consulting people about it now. Did I get it sort of correct? Uh, that is my understanding of it, yes. Yeah. So the main thing is that there are arguments for both sides to mine and not to mine. And what you're saying is like, if nobody knows enough geology to really make an informed opinion right now. Yeah. And I mean, we can look at that too, in terms of the oil and gas industry as well in Alberta, which has been a, a very kind of a hot button topic uh, for mm -hmm. many years, especially since the, uh, uh, the market for it has, has decreased in value. Um, you know, 
when we think of things like the the oil sands in the north, back when we first started, you know, mining or or drilling this oil sands, um, you know, one of the only ways to to access it was to do this kind of clear cut and open pit style um, extraction, which is what we you know think of in terms of mining as well. And what the researchers that I work with here, one of the things that they specialize in is looking at how to extract these resources in a way that is not as evasive to, or sorry, not invasive uh, to the environment. Um, being mm. able to do drilling or being able to do oil extraction without having to clear you know, the forests up in, in, in Northern Alberta. Um, so there, there is this kind of stigma that is, has stayed with the oil and gas industry. Um, and, and it does have a, a fair um, reputation in the past about being environmentally destructive. Uh, but, you know, the, the geology is working towards allowing it to to still be a way to extract this resource that even though we are trying to move towards more renewable uh, forms of energy, we're never really going to get rid of oil and gas. It's always mm -hmm. going to have some sort of place in our energy and manufacturing um, lives. So trying to find a way to do that, but also not... Um, damage the environment uh, to an extent that is where it can't be uh, reclamated is a very important thing to, to, to deal with. So this is another one of these things where you have to have this uh, understanding of geology in order to properly uh, implement that. Here's a question that I, and I'll, I'll, I'll challenge everybody who's listening to think about. I asked this to my my top chem students every year when we get to organic chemistry, um, I ask them where oil comes from. Like what is oil? And every year, nobody can answer it. Not a single kid could tell me what oil was. Um, and that's weird in Alberta because we're an oil and gas province. And I'm wondering how many people at home could answer that question. Um, and it depends on where you are in the world, but Alberta had that massive Bear Bear Paw Lake or Bear Paw Ocean, right? Yep. And uh, it's the, the critters that lived in it, the the algae. Um, that's what it is. Yeah, ab absolutely. There was it was a a huge thriving ecosystem um, of variety variety of of species during that Cretaceous period, and just because of the environment it was in, with all the sedimentation happening there, it just created this this perfect perfect storm of of elements to create this oil once everything got buried yeah i love it they're like is it dinosaurs i'm like well when you fill up your car and you want premium gas that's just a that's the t-rex right just a couple shots of t-rex premium gas if you're getting regular that's just trilobite yes and they're like and they're like oh yeah i'm like no i'm 
kidding, you guys. <laughs> They're just clueless, right? But that's that's a lack of education. So, <laughs> well, and and yeah, especially you know, the oil comes from dead dinosaurs. I mean, that's that's one of those those phrases that just gets thrown out there yeah, into, it, into the, the society that uh, you know, it's yeah. kind of the only thing that people can can equate it to. And there's a little bit of an aspect to that, but it's not nearly the entire story. It's not, no. <laughs> well, that's cool. I, I love that we were able to talk a little bit about education. Um, my day job is an educator and that's near and dear to my heart. So thanks for sharing your passion, your, your passion about educating kids about geology. Well, sadly, we're at the end of the interview. Um, this has been a, just an enlightening and such a fun discussion Wow, I'm just like I'm just running back through my head the things that we were able to talk about today. Uh, first off, thank you for talking to us. And second, can people follow you on social media? Um, they can follow me on social media. I will put a uh, a warning out there. Um, I do have a um, a Twitter account. It's not strictly um, kind of science and stuff like that. I'm a big Edmonton Oilers fan, so if you catch me on a game <laughs> night. There's a lot of Oilers uh, tweets and everything that come out there. Um, but I, I like posting jokes and things like that. So if you do want to follow me on Twitter, uh, you can. It's uh, at geology24 underscore seven. Cool. Okay, we'll make sure that link is in the show notes for people that want to follow you. And you know what? Even though, Even though they just got shellacked, Three days in a row by the Toronto Maple Leafs. The Edmonton Oilers are my hockey team that I cheer for. Yeah, I I, I don't want to talk about last week's games. <laughs> but I, I am uh, looking forward to the Battle of Alberta tonight. So oh, man, it's going to be rough. We'll see. We'll see. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thanks for sharing your stories. Thanks for talking to us, talking about your time at the Royal Terrell Museum and geology meteorites, t- educating kids. For your cat, Faramir. Uh, thanks again. All right. Well, thank you again for having me. I I, uh, really enjoyed this. It's time for Woo or Wow on the Science Podcast. And I've got Courtney Provan with me today. How are you doing today, Courtney? I'm very well, thank you. That's awesome. Courtney, you are one of our patrons. Thank you so much for supporting uh, Bunsen and Beaker content. I love your dogs and I love their message of science, cuteness, and empathy. So I'm very much uh, glad to support. Uh, How did you find the account to start with? I somehow stumbled upon it through dog Twitter. I can't remember if it was We Rate Dogs and their sharing of photos of Bunsen or if it was through Blair Braverman or the Golden Ratio. Um, And then I got really excited that you guys are Canadian because I'm also Canadian and I love Bernese Mountain Dogs. Um, And so that was just, I just grew to love your content. Aw, thank you. We love We Rate Dogs, The Golden Ratio, and Blair Braverman. Um, they're they're all such great accounts. Yes, and dog Twitter is just so, such full of good things. <laughs> <laughs> it is, isn't it? Yeah. Um, I mean, you could try to find like the bad side of Twitter. It's pretty easy. But uh, if you follow dogs, you're probably okay. Yeah, I uh, curated my Twitter. I just, after the pandemic started, to be pretty much strictly dog Twitter mm, um, to help me get through it. Smart. Yeah. We were, uh, as you know, we fight the misinformation, the science information with their account through a different type of messaging. Um, I think that's been, I don't know if what the trolls, it's really hard, I think, for the trolls to figure out what to do with a science 
dog account because they're normally normal tactics don't work the same way. <laughs> yeah, it's hard to attack an adorable giant dog. <laughs> um, and you said you're working. You're Canadian. Are you in Canada? Do you live in Canada right now? I do. I live in Muskoka, Ontario, Canada. And if you know where that is, you probably know someone who has a cottage here or have been to a cottage here because it is cottage country. Gotcha. Okay. So Ontario is enormous. It's the biggest, is it the biggest province? Yeah, it's the biggest province. Where is Masoka relative to like, say Toronto? We are two hours north of Toronto. Okay, you're straight north. That's what I figured up. Is it by all the lakes there, like the northern lakes? Yes. Like the, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we're on Georgian Bay, and we've got Lake Muskoka, Lake Rosso, Lake Joseph. Those are the big three. Right. And then there's, like, everybody has a cottage here. There are celebrities like Kurt Russell and Goldie Hawn and Tom Hanks and Arnold Schwarzenegger had been to the Dairy what? Queen. So, yeah. That's cool. Quite popular. It's like Sylvan Lake in Alberta, but like a thousand times better, probably. (laughs) That's okay. That's an Albertan joke for people who are listening from Alberta. Um, (laughs) And what do you do for a career, uh, Courtney? I spent 10 years in banking and then just started a new career in museums. And I am now the director of the Muskoka Lakes Museum in Port Carling. And that's something I just started in February. And we're just kind of gearing up for our summer when we're allowed to open. Um, But it's a nice small community museum. It talks about the development of the lakes, the first nations that used to live here or well, still do live here, but use the lakes back um, when they were the main occupants of the area and the history of the resorts and cottage industry. And it's a great little place. Oh, very cool. Well, thanks for sharing that. Are you ready to do some trivia? I am, and I am a competitive trivia person, but I'm not sure about the tricky science questions. (laughs) So the theme this week is meteors slash meteorites slash asteroids. Ooh. So again, for people that are just tuning in, where wow works this way. I read three statements. Two of them are fake. They're They're woo, and one of them is true. It's a wow, and you have to try and find the true statement. Statement number one, the ISS is actually not built to withstand any meteor impact. ISS is the International Space Station. Well, the chances are very low that a meteorite could strike, it could probably take the whole space station out. Okay. Okay. Have you seen uh, Gravity with Sandra Bullock? Yes, I saw it in IMAX. Oh, wow. Lucky. I see. Yeah. Very cool movie in IMAX, I'd imagine. Yes. Okay. All right. Statement two. A fireball is a meteor that causes a fire when it hits the surface of the earth. Okay. Okay. Statement three. Meteor showers come from earth passing into the trail of a comet or asteroid, not from random thousands of independent space rocks that are out there. Okay. All right. Oh, do you God. want me to re? Do you want me to recap? Yes, please. Okay. Statement one: The International Space Station is actually not built to withstand any meteor impact. While the chances are very low a meteor could strike, a small meteor could take out the whole thing. Statement two: A fireball is a meteor that causes a fire when it hits the surface of the Earth. Statement three: Meteor showers come from Earth passing into the tail 
of a comet or asteroid, not from thousands of independent space rocks. I think that the true one is the International Space Station can't withstand a meteor impact. Okay. So they're just uh, crossing their fingers they don't get smoked. Well, I mean, the physics people are really smart and would un- like would be able to know that like if it would be in the pattern and i feel like they wouldn't put it there <laughs> <laughs> okay final answer courtney yeah final answer number 1 is true okay number 1 is true was there one that you were leaning to that was false right off the bat yeah i think the second one was false because a fireball i feel would just create a fireball like you have all those russian dash cams of fireballs and they're not <laughs> yet so Gotcha. Like those yeah, are you're, fireballs. You're so, right. That is that's an incorrect statement. Yeah. Okay. That's one well, of the woos. Between one and three. Yeah. That's that's one of the woos. A fireball is actually something that's brighter in the sky, uh, like a, a meteor that's brighter than Venus. So that's what's considered a fireball. As soon as it gets brighter than Venus, it's considered a fireball because Venus is the closest planet to us and the brightest one due to its reflective surface from all of those gases. Okay, we're down to the last two statements. One was about the ISS and the other was from the meteor showers. Which one do you want to hear first? I want to hear number three first and see if I'm wrong. Meteor showers come from Earth passing into the trail or tail of a comet or asteroid, not from thousands of independent space rocks. If this statement turns out to be true, you lose. But if it's false, you win. This statement is... This one's the true statement, Courtney. Sorry. Um, comets and asteroids continuously eject material every time they go around the sun and they start to have a long tail behind them. And that's what we pass through for meteor showers. That's like the Perside meteor shower. Oh, that's how we know when they're going to show up. Yeah, that's right. When we can kind of like track when the comet comes whipping around again, right? Or when we pass through its tail, because the tails can be super long. And the ISS has shielding that can protect it against micrometeorites up to an inch wide. Well, that's good for the people on the space station. It is, right? <laughs> so, like, um, like you're a Canadian, so what's an inch in centimeters? That's like, what the heck? 2.5. It's like 2.5. Yeah, I was going to say just about three centimeters. Yeah, I think that's... That's a pretty good-sized rock. Like, when you think of it, that's a pretty good-sized rock. So, that would I wonder what... If you go- yeah, if it, oh, it would it'd probably kill you. Like those things are just going so fast. Yeah. Everybody's listening, learn something. That was kind of a tricky one. Um, you were down to the last two. That's usually what happens. Well, I'm glad I was able to eliminate one right off the bat. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Um, in Ontario, out by the cottages, is there a lot of light pollution? Do you get to see stuff at night? We actually have a place called Torrance Barren's Dark Sky Preserve. Oh, sweet. Is, You've got a dark sky preserve. Yeah, it's like a national park. And uh, it's not national. I think it's provincial. Um, but yeah, it's a dark sky preserve. And I went out there last year when Jupiter and Saturn were really close. Wow. With some friends that came up from Toronto. And we looked at the area um, and saw the dots and saw the rings. Very cool. And yeah, and I remember I lived here back when the eastern seaboard power outage happened. Oh man, what that ice storm, right? Yeah, and or no, this one was in um August long weekend. Something happened and wiped out the whole eastern seaboard of power like from New York. Oh, okay. Was it I don't I'm not familiar with that. It was a hurricane or something. I don't know. 
have to be something. Some kind of random overloaded. Oh, really? York that took everything out or something. Somebody plugged in like an extra space heater and took it all out. Yeah, and it was like back in like two. I want to say two thousand and three or something, and we like we were without power for a few days. But um, I went out on a cruise ship. There's like a dinner ship called the Seguin that used to be a Royal Mail ship, and they do a dinner cruise. And I went out on the cruise that night. Um, and all these like million dollar cottages that are up here that are usually lit up and all of them were dark and black and it was just like the sky was amazing. <laughs> That's so cool. Well, it was really good uh, to talk to you and 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 have you on the podcast for Wow. Thanks for agreeing to do this. And, and again, thank you so much for supporting Bunsen and Beaker content. Oh, anytime. I will always support Bunsen and Beaker. And did you, did you, uh, did you see the, now this is for this people might get really intrigued by this. Uh, I posted the first prototype of the Beaker stuffy. Did you get to see that on the patron page? I did. And she looks so cute and I love the fluffy tail. I know it is. It's going to be adorable. I can't wait. (laughs) Oh yeah. Me too. I'm so excited. It'll go right beside (laughs) my Bunsen stuffy and my (laughs) stuffed elephant that I have to keep high away from my dog. Love it. Because he That's likes so to cool. eat them. <laughs> well, you have yourself a nice night. Yeah, well, thank you very much for having me. And I will probably agree to come back on so that I can hopefully get one right. <laughs> you betcha. Yeah, yeah. It's You know what? It's it's tough. It's tough. Usually it comes down to a guess and some people guess right and some people guess wrong. That's what would happen to me. I'm, I only know the answers because I have the answers. All right. Take care of yourself, Courtney. Okay, thanks. Bye. Okay, it's time for story time with me. Adam, if you don't know what story time is, story time is when we talk about stories that have happened within the past one or two weeks. I will start. Um, okay, so if you don't know Beaker, she's super quiet. She's like the most quiet thing ever. Like you would not, when you're sitting on the couch with her, all you can hear is her breathing. And that's just like, yeah, except when she's snoring. So then she's super loud. Um, or when she's barking at the door. Then she tries to be super tough, but she doesn't sound tough at all. Yeah, she tries to be super tough at the door, but she does not sound tough at all because she is a golden retriever and she has soft mouth. Something that happens with her sometimes is she will get into a crazy place. Big girls sometimes go into crazy places. Like, um, I don't know, a room and you won't hear her or she'll just follow behind you and you won't hear her. You won't even notice that she's in there until you leave and she comes out behind you and like, where were you? How did you get in there? That's a both a, a blessing and a curse, a blurse, if you will, um, because one time, I don't know how this happened, but she got in the pantry and the door closed behind her, and then she was in the pantry, and we were very worried about where Beaker went. I don't know how long she was in there. She was in there for like probably like two minutes. Oh, oh, that was like an hour. No, no, it would not have been an hour. I thought, hey, she's probably in the pantry because she's been doing that a lot more lately. She's been sneaky and going into the pantry. Um, so, yeah, I opened the door and Beaker was in there. She was very happy to see me and us as a family. And then we went on the couch and then she got really tired. So I picked her up and, and I hugged her. Um, yeah. Mom, do you have a story? I sure do. My story has to do with doggy daycare. I took the dogs to doggy daycare on Tuesday this week and they had a great day as always. And then uh, when we went to pick them up, I had my niece with me, uh, Ellie. I had Ellie with me and she said, can I please come in with you to get the dogs? Sure, absolutely. So we mask up, in we go. And the minute... The second, actually. The second Beaker saw Ellie, she launched herself 
basically total vert over the gate and went to see Ellie because she loves her so much. And so that was super cute. But it was like alley-oop and over the gate. That was actually pretty high. It was kind of kind of crazy. But that's my story. She jumpy. Uh, Dad, do you have a story? Sure. My story isn't about dogs, though. My story is about cobra chickens, a.k.a. Canada geese. I mentioned when I did the spaces on Tuesday, I would bring up the story. So kids have been online at Thurber for three weeks now, the rest of Alberta two weeks, because the COVID numbers went crazy. And the government was like, what you going to do? And then they decided to actually do something about it. Okay. No. Oh my God. I can't cut this out. <laughs> right. Okay. So the kids are gone. And what has moved into the vast open lawns of the front of my high school is eight pairs of Canada geese, male and female. They've crapped everywhere. <laughs> there is poop everywhere. Everything is covered with goose poop. And they saunter around like, I'm like, get out of here, geese. And they look at me and they're like, and they just walk away like they own the place like they they do not care and some of the smaller staff members have been attacked they've come out the wrong door and the geese are like and they chase them back into the school we're kind of hoping the kids come back I don't know what the geese are going to think when all of the kids are back but they're going to have to move on I think the kids aren't going to like that there's poop everywhere so pro tip Adam when you're going into the school watch out for the poop on Tuesday next week (laughs) That's my story. Nothing about the dogs, but that's it. Thank you for listening. My volume went super high there. Um, But yeah, uh, I hope to see you guys next time on the podcast. Bye-bye. Hi, Bumson. That's the end of another podcast episode. Thanks for coming back week after week to spend time with us uh, with science and with fun stories and great interviews. Speaking of great interviews, special thanks to our expert guest, Chantel Chinnery, who talked to us about all things geology, paleontology, dinosaurs, meteorites, and teaching kids about rocks. We'd also like to give a shout out to our top tier patrons on Patreon. It keeps growing. It's so exciting. What a great community. If you want to hear your name at the end of the podcast, sign up at our Patreon page. It's in the show notes. Take it away, Chris. Nate Stephenson, Debbie Anderson, Courtney Proven, Renee Hardy, Mary Rader, Shelby Leggett, Dan Fry, Mary Coos, Katia Lynch, Marianne McNally, Andrea Persons, Elizabeth Bourgeois, Karen Beth St. George, Bianca Hyde, Lisa Swartz, Catherine Jordan, Donna Craig, Lila Ashier, Jody Ogren, Liz Button, Kathy Zerker, and Ben Rathert. Let's close with the dog's motto for science, empathy, and cuteness. Uh.